0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Good evening. Welcome, everybody. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Because our university is built upon their ancestral lands, we like to think that sharing our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices is one way of paying respect to the knowledge embedded within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Which brings me to why we're here, sharing our knowledge, teaching, learning and practices. So my name is Professor Glenda Sluger. I run what's called the Laureate Research Program in International History here. It's a fabulous job. I'm very lucky, and it allows me to think not only about the international past, but also the present, a topic area uh, that in this current climate made me also think that we need to have more discussions about what is going on around the world, to take an international view of our place in the world and the problems that we face. So thanks to Meredith Hall, who runs Sydney Ideas and up, the back, up the back there, for allowing us to put together a program of discussions this semester and what I've called the Thinker's Guide to the 21st Century. So this is the first of those panels. And it was Meredith who sold me on this image. And in fact, um, in the poster, it has a third person, of course, Theresa May. Yes, we do forget about these days. Um, and there could have been a lot of other pictures you know, that we might have chosen. We, could have chosen pictures of war and humanitarian crisis in Yemen or in Syria, shrinking glaciers, deforestation, drought in South Sudan, refugee camps, Manus Island. You know, Think of your international order disorder problem or crisis. But this image, which is on the surface seems a happier one, bright coloured at least, (laughs) is from the recent Hamburg G20 summit, if we've forgotten. So much happens every day, we may have forgotten. (laughs) Where the leaders of the wealthiest states in the world, including Australia, meet to discuss significant global issues. And I found out doing some research today, I didn't know this, some of you may know, but Australia has a G20 Sherpa, and you can follow the Sherpa on Twitter. I'm not sure what the job description (laughs) entails, but there you go. Maybe it's because it's a summit, so you have a Sherpa taking you up. And the interesting thing about the G20 as uh, a facet of international politics these days is that, of course, it places at the centre economic questions and ideas in the current international order, although we tend to forget that. And and it also reminds us that even though we have international organisations, a lot that goes on in organisations... uh, have, has less well-known origins and possibly less transparent ways of working than an organisation like the UN. So the G20, for example, the leaders of states only meet at the summit and most of the work is done by finance ministers and central bank governors who talk to each other more regularly. It is also used as a platform uh, for articulating, branding this group of people with specific values, and at the Hamburg event, the Hamburg event, the um, value was shaping an interconnected world, which uh, Merkel chose, and its broader themes uh, also reflect, I think, a sense of um, what the crisis points in the international order today are, and they were, as articulated by the G20, reduce economic and ecological and political risk. Uh, think about sustainable and inclusive growth through collective action, develop resilience, sustainability and responsibility. And I also had a look at what the previous year's agenda was and that was in China, in Hangzhou. It was the first time they'd had it in China and it was tax evasion, uh, international trade, fiscal stimulus, anti-populist attacks on globalisation and supporting refugees. So I found this image very interesting because it allows us to kind of segue into some of the the uh, themes that have generated a sense of crisis around the, the whole idea of international order in um, today's world. So we've got Trump, Merkel, and May. And that's interesting. Well, May would be there. Because at least one of the women are regarded as you, know, possible, you know, a possible contender for title world, world leader. And even if it's a strange, to see two of the leading states figures as women, um, the other disruptive, and of course they're European or not European, but they're in that part of the world. The other disruptive element in the image is the man at the centre, who should be the most normative figure really in that picture. Instead, he represents what seems to be kind of the anti G20 agenda. So he's the populist attacks on globalisation, um, he's the anti refugee person. And he's also, in a sense, the anti-international meetings person. And if you track the um, present position of the United States on uh, diplomacy, for example, which is part of this kind of international world of meetings, etc., cetera, uh, these days they're associated with a valueless transactional diplomacy. So it's a rather different way of thinking about the world than perhaps Julie Bishop. If you follow her on her Twitter feed, she's out there doing that other kind of diplomacy. So all of this throws up the question, do we even have a shared view of international order? And is it all it has been cracked up to be? Um, what does this international order look like? What should it look like? Is it an illusion, a delusion? And these are questions that I'm going to be putting to my panel. And I've invited speakers who I think um, are the best minds in the country at the moment. on how to think about the current situation and what is at stake. Each of them has been important in allowing us to see and think about the idea of an international order in new ways to help us navigate through the present. So I'm going to briefly introduce each of them in, the, uh, in reverse order. I'll start in the, with the second speaker. And then um, I'm going to ask a question of each uh, speaker. And they're going to spend a bit of time talking about their work. And then uh, we'll continue the discussion in a a way that allows all of us to get in to the debate a bit. And then we'll open up to questions to all of you at around 7 o'clock. So I'll start with our um, second speaker, Anne Orford. Anne is Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor, Michael D Kirby Chair of International Law. They're two different things. And a third thing, a Kathleen Fitzpatrick Australian Laureate Fellow at Melbourne Law School, where she directs the Laureate Program in International Law. She has been awarded the Woodward Medal for Excellence in Humanities and Social Sciences by the University of Melbourne and Honorary Doctorates of Laws by Lund University, Gothenburg and Helsinki and her publications include International Authority and the Responsibility to Protect, Human Rights and the Use of Force in International Law and she's co-editor of a number of books including International Law and its Others and the Oxford Handbook of the Theory of International Law, which is about this thick and absolutely fabulous and full of great things. Mm. Professor Orford's scholarship combines the study of the history and theory of international law in order to grasp the changing nature and role of international law in contemporary politics. Her current projects are committed to addressing one of the most significant problems in international relations for the 21st century, whether and under what conditions foreign actors can intervene in civil wars. And of course, this is a question that's come up a lot in relation to Syria, the Ukraine, and Iraq, of just three examples. James Dardarian, next to her, many of you will know. I'm sure some of you are students, I'm sure that's why. I hope is. so. Is the Michael Hinzer Chair of International Security Studies and Director of the Center for International Security Studies here at the University of Sydney. He came to Sydney from the Watson Institute at Brown University. And I have to say, I remember his work from my early days as a graduate, when anything he published made me squeal with delight, which I've decided makes you a child prodigy when I was working (laughs) at the (laughs) penology. His research and teaching interests are in international security, information technology, international theory, and documentary film. So he's published books like Virtuous War, uh, Mapping the Military Industrial Media Entertainment Network, critical practices in international theory, sustainable diplomacies. But he's also done the thing that I'm sure all of us want to do, and that is to make films. And three of those are Virtual Y2K, After 9-11, and most recently Human Terrain, which won um, Aud- the Audience Award at the Festival dei Popoli in Florence in 2009. And then there's Project Z, the final global event, which premiered at the Leipzig Film Festival a few years ago. And I recommend them all, although I have to say, keep the Prozac close when you watch them. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start with the other IR scholar scholar at the table, Chris Royce-Smith. So Chris is Professor of International Relations at the University of Queensland and a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Before joining UQ, Chris held chairs at the European University Institute and the ANU, and amongst his recent books are Individual Rights and the Making of the International System, uh, He's co-editor of the Cambridge Studies in International Relations book series, the journal International Theory, and a new multi-volume series of Oxford Handbooks of International Relations, which will also be really thick and useful. Chris's specialty is explicitly international orders, so it's great that he's here. I find his definitions of international order very useful, he distinguishes example, between the idea of order as the organisation of international political life and order as an absence of upheaval. And these ideas, I think, have been working their way through um, some of his thinking on the nature of the challenges currently posed to both these conceptions of order by a very specific um, problem, the problem of cultural diversity. So I'm now going to hand over to you and ask you to answer the question that um, Kevin Rudd put in 2012 and that you have quoted. Kevin said, we find ourselves at a point in history when, for the first time since George III, a non-Western, non-democratic state will be the largest economy in the world. Will it accept the cultural norms and structure of the post-war order or will it seek to change it? Now, of course, your work is much broader than addressing the China question as it is. Um, It's about cultural diversity, so tell us about it.
2: Thank you, Glenda. That was a very nice introduction and it's terrific to be here to to speak to this audience. So uh, let me begin by contextualising Rudd's statement. Rudd's statement is indicative of an anxiety that is very widespread in Western capitals at the moment. And this is an anxiety about the impact of cultural diversity on the modern Western international order. And the fear is that an international order that was constructed by the West, for the West, would somehow be brought unstuck by the rise of non-Western powers. Non-Western powers that would bring their own values, their own practices to the table, and that would seek to reshape the international order uh, in ways that are consistent to that with those values, that but perhaps are not consistent with the values that have guided and structured the international order uh, over the past two centuries. Now this, this particular anxiety uh, betrays a, a deep-seated view that is out there in the literature on international order that says that international orders grow out of unitary cultural foundations. So the modern international order grew out of western Christendom and that it took on institutional characteristics that were expressions of Western values, and it was sustained by Western power. And this literature says that diversity is corrosive of international order because you lose the underlying cultural foundations that are necessary to sustain an international (coughs) order. Now, that particular sort of anxiety, which is very widespread, Uh, is countered by a liberal argument. And the liberal argument says, don't worry, culture's not a problem. Because the modern liberal international order is an international order that enshrines certain principles like sovereignty and non-intervention and practices like multilateralism that are open rules-based environment in which actors that have different cultural complexions and identities can come together and pursue their values and, and their interests in an institutional framework that enables them to coexist together. And I call this the kind of miracle of Westphalia argument. So the treaties of Westphalia in 1648 ended the wars of religion and invented the miraculous institution of sovereignty. And then we don't need to think about culture anymore. So you have a debate about culture and international order that is polarized between two positions. One is a position that says culture is all determining, and the modern international order is going to collapse because of the rise of China and the rise of Asian powers. Or an argument that says, Culture doesn't matter, the liberal institutions will deal with it uh, and it won't be a problem. It'll neutralise culture. Now, I think both of these positions are deeply problematic. First of all, the first position is based on ideas about culture that were thriving in anthropology and sociology somewhere between the 1930s and 1950s. This is a view of culture that says cultures are coherent entities, tightly integrated, neatly bounded and almost purposeful. Cultures have purposes. Cultures almost act. And cultures shape institutions in a direct and unproblematic way. Now that particular view of culture has been really condemned in anthropology and sociology for at least two decades. Culture is now understood not as a thing, but as a highly variegated system of meanings and practices that is as contradictory as it is coherent. Not tightly integrated, loosely integrated, deeply interpenetrated by different kinds of cultural formations. So culture becomes something that is far more complex and its relationship to institutional practices is... Highly complex, highly variegated, and very, very difficult to track. But it's also, this view of culture and international order is also inconsistent with a wave of new histories that are telling us that just about any international order that you can think of historically didn't emerge in a unitary cultural context. It actually emerged in a highly heterogeneous cultural context. And if anything, one of the imperatives of order building was the governing or the disciplining of cultural difference. Creating institutional frameworks that constructed authorised forms of difference out of what we might, just for a better word, call raw heterogeneity. Now, what I'm trying to do in my work is to think about how you can rethink the relationship between cultural diversity and international order if you take these new ways of thinking about culture and political life more seriously. Hmm. And what I'm trying to do when you look at the modern international order is to say, first of all, that the modern international order never emerged in a unitary cultural context. It emerged in a highly heterogeneous and complex cultural context that even if you take the kind of Western foundations or the Western sources of that order, they were deeply riven. Religious conflict, remember the Reformation, was deeply at the centre of the development of the international order. But more importantly, as the international order evolved, it was influenced by civilisation and cultural influences that came from outside, that transformed it as it globalised. But also, the order developed powerful mechanisms for constructing and organising cultural difference in ways that 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 licensed certain forms of cultural difference while silencing others and we've seen different periods of this so we see for example at the end of the 19th century the european powers codifying a standard of civilization in international law that divided the world up according to civilizational gradations civilized barbarians and savage peoples now that civilizational discourse was dis, was yet was one was a different way of organizing uh, cultural life than the kind of that prevailed in the 17th and 18th century where it was religion that was the organising cultural axis. We see in the middle of the 20th century that you see the rise of different conceptions of nation instead of civilization. And then from the, from the 1945 onwards you see gradually the movement away from ideas about civilization as being dominant, movement away from ideas about ethno-nationalism toward ideas about civic nationalism and multiculturalism as ways of organising international life and life within states. Now where this ends me up is that the question that we should be asking today is not whether a western culturally homogeneous international order is suddenly being challenged by cultural diversity, but how the particular institutional mechanisms that have evolved in the modern international order to structure and organise diversity in particular ways can deal with new articulations of power and expressions of cultural difference. And here, the really interesting thing is the resurgence of three kinds of claims that the international order had pushed into the background. One is claims to civilizational identity, One has claims to religious identity and one has claims to ethno-national identity. All of which had been sanctioned forms of cultural difference in previous periods of the international order but had been pushed to the sidelines but have now re-emerged. Can the international order accommodate those kinds of articulations of difference and how might it adapt? I'll leave it there.
1: I just ask a quick follow-up question? Because, you know, I have been reading your work on this too and I think it's really interesting. Would you argue that there's a way in which the kinds of debates we have within the domestic setting about cultural difference, whether it's religious mm-hmm. or uh, racial and eth- ethnic, uh, they're the same debates then but writ large? Right. Are we thinking about the same kinds of problems dif- but in different contexts? But right theoretically at least, that we need to be thinking of some kind of translational relationship between what we talk about at home and what we talk about when we think about our place in the world?
2: So let me answer that in two ways. One is, the first thing is, one one of the easiest ways to understand what I'm talking about is actually to think about domestic societies. So if you think about the different ways in which societies have sought to organise cultural difference internally. So we have models of multiculturalism we have assimilationist models we have melting pot models we have cultural genocidal models we have physical genocidal models all of these are different ways of structuring and organising cultural difference and what I'm arguing is first of all is that actually the same thing is going on at the international level the second thing that I'd say is that there tends to be a kind of articulation, so that the ways in which the international order seeks or the international order constructs difference usually involves a domestic analog mm-hmm. right? so what you find in uh, so for example, take the post Versailles period where you get you get on the one hand you get the use of ideas about civilizational difference to structure the relationship between the colonial and the, and the, and, and the, and the colonised worlds, you get ideas about ethno-nationalism and the state being used within Europe to structure relations. There's actually... A, the, the, idea, the, the ideas that are working out at the international level end up prescribing ways of managing relations domestically. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, the two are connected in those ways.
1: OK, so I think we're going to have lots of opportunity to pick up on some of these ideas through the panel... And then in question time, I'm going to move on now to um, Anne Orford. And law, you know, Anne's an international lawyer, and law is sort of front and centre in the current debates about, you know, is it the end of the international order as we know it? Is there an international order or just disorder? Uh, so I really was um, interested in seeing that Anne had uh, helped organise and was part of um, a conference in Helsinki called International Law in Dark Times, which resonates, I think Hannah Arendt, the idea of dark times. And I just wondered, um, how, sh- how have you been thinking about international law in the context of the contemporary um, sense of crisis? Well, many thanks, Glenda, for the question and for the invitation.
0: Um, and as Glenda's mentioned, I am uh, a scholar of international law, so I wanted to focus on both those things. So what is it um, that international law... Uh, brings to bear on this question and what challenges do current developments pose for those of us who study and teach international law. I wanted to um, do that by sketching first what I think's shifted and then three challenges that that poses for those of us trying to grasp the place of international law in the current situation. So... For much of the past two decades, basically since the end of the Cold War, many international lawyers would have felt they were studying a fairly stable field. So international law was understood to be a profession uh, and an academic discipline broadly committed to the spread of liberal ideas, at least in countries like Australia and its allies. So for many international lawyers, not all, but many... That gave international law a sense of a forward movement and a telos. loss. So international law was understood, was thought to be on the right side of history. It was part of a progressive narrative in which we could witness across the past centuries a gradual movement towards self-determination, protection of individual rights, economic integration, peaceful settlement of disputes, all furthered through international institutions designed to oversee this process of gradual liberalisation. And the assumption that the system was basically liberal I think also informed critique of international law. And it meant that critical moves themselves were fairly stable. So from the left, there was a powerful critique of the naivete of Cold War liberalism. There was an anarchic cynicism about experts and the state. And from the right, there was a challenge to the residual ways in which the liberal state and rule of law, uh, the administrative state, I think we're now being told, constrained any remaining uh, uh, inhibitions on the innovator or the entrepreneur. So both of those lines of critique assumed that there was a particular form of liberal order organised around liberal states and and that this was the problem. So the relentless forward movement of that story, I think, began to come under pressure uh, early in the 21st century with uh, the attacks on the US of September 11, its initiation of the war on terror, uh, which began to see the tenuous balance between security and liberty within that system tip towards security. And there was also at that point um, the emergence of a pushback against the... Uh, ambitious forms of property protection and economic integration that had been unfolding through the World Trade Organization and through the emerging network of bilateral and other investment agreements. So we might remember um, the battle in Seattle, which I gather some of my students now think of as a film, but it was actually an event, uh, the protest that surrounded the WTO ministerial conference in 1999. But none of that really seemed to shake the underlying certainty of Western governments, of scholars and of experts that this system was essentially a liberal one, that the expansion of international law was essentially a liberal project. And that sense that the project of international legalism was a liberal one made it possible, in my view, to overlook some of the ways in which that expansion of international law and realisation of increased international integration depended to a degree on institutions or techniques that in other situations we would have criticised as undemocratic or even illiberal. So we could think about um, the expanding powers of the um, UN Security Council, of course not at all a democratic body, Uh, We could think about the scope of discretion available to the prosecutor and indeed the Security Council under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court in relation to initiating criminal prosecutions. We could think of expansive constraints placed on states in terms of the capacity to implement environmental, labour or even health regulations through WTO agreements Uh, and international investment agreements. Australia, of course, having been on the receiving end of that in the attempt to uh, create plain packaging legislation for cigarettes. And we might or might not think that those expansive uh, delegations of power to international bodies were directed to worthwhile ends, maybe protecting against abusive regimes or egregious behaviour on the part of governments or groups. But those mechanisms nonetheless did provide ways through which small groups of actors were able to change the law outside democratic democratic processes. Now, many of those old certainties about the nature of that order, its desirability and its longevity, seem to be changing. Uh, And at least one of the people on the screen is playing a part in that. So this raises new challenges for those of us who study and teach international law. So here's just three. The first is the question, is this still a liberal order? So what's the new normal? So the first issue, I think, is the foundational question of whether this is still a liberal project and a liberal order. So as I've already suggested, many of the forms of consolidation and centralization of executive power at the international level were premised on an understanding that those mechanisms were a means of achieving liberal ends. And today we're faced with what Henry Kissinger, I, I promise I rarely quote him and I won't do it again, mm-hmm. but um, what he would have called a conceptual challenge. So that's a challenge concerning what we understand the normal situation to be. And let me illustrate that just by suggesting that we're looking at the collective security system. So if I'd been given this talk just a few months ago, we would have been faced with the real possibility that the permanent five members of the Security Council would have included the traditionally authoritarian states of China and Russia, plus governments led by Donald Trump, Theresa May and Marine Le Pen. So what would that have meant for our understanding of the nature of the international order if this capacity of a permanent five to pacify or stabilise the world system was in the hands of five governments of that, of that flavour? So the first challenge then is understanding whether what is the new normal. The second challenge is understanding the relationship between democracy, international law and populism. So many international lawyers... Um, are concerned about the profound critique of the international order posed by uh, nationalist and populist movements. And very often when we, international lawyers, are faced with a challenge between nationalism and internationalism, we would assume that more internationalism is good and nationalism is bad. And that's understandable when nationalism is used by populist campaigners to align critiques of globalisation with appeals to xenophobia and racism. But it's not simply conspiracy theorising to argue that economic liberalisation involves winners and losers, and that international economic integration has overtly been designed as a way of removing certain issues from control of democratic parliaments. So that sounds so conspiracy theorist as I say it. And yet... Um, It's very clear that the theorists of international economic integration as early as the 1930s saw democracy as a problem because it posed a threat to individual liberty, particularly economic freedom. And they believed that democratic states too easily became the prey of organised special interests and therefore couldn't act for the collective good, here being individual economic freedom. So they developed proposals to constrain collectivism That included economic integration. So that vision was implemented through agreements such as the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade or institutions such as the European Union. And in the intervening decades, as broader aspects of social and political life have been seen as economic, so too have broader aspects of social and political life been removed from democratic control. So the second challenge then is to rethink a too-easy dismissal of the fears and politics behind the backlash against economic globalisation as mere nationalist protectionism. And the final challenge involves what I'm going to call the co-constitution of critique and the object being critiqued. So here I mean that scholars like me, when we try to think critically about what we see as dangerous developments or questionable doctrines or dodgy new vocabularies or regressive tendencies in the operation of international law, often amplify such tendencies and bring them to the foreground. And when we do that, other less dramatic or scandalous aspects of everyday legal routine disappear into the background. In addition, both the vocabularies and doctrines that we might want to critique and those that are available to critique them are often part of broader institutional power struggles that we don't control or initiate. So legal scholars, and I think the same would be true of others, often reproduce and indeed participate in institutional power, power struggles just by taking up the language of those institutions and participating in debates on the terms made available by them. And sociologists of of critique have suggested that this is true more generally, that concepts, frameworks, vocabularies, objects or problems present themselves in critique and present themselves in the academy only after they've arisen as practical concerns of modern institutions and governments. So here, I think, the turn to history is really vital. The turn to thinking carefully and describing closely how, precisely, where and through what institu- institutions new vocabularies and doctrines present themselves is really important.
1: Thank you. Um, just as a, a, a sort of quick follow-up question, but it's a big one, I suppose. This also comes out of your work and is related... Um, to what you're saying so tangentially. I mean, you know, where does... It, so you've problematised international law for us, which is really important, but where does, it, where does it sit in the sense of crisis? Is it that the world is um, a world in which the rule of international law is becoming more entrenched, or one where uh, it has come to mean no more than what the powers uh, intended to, to mean, and I think this comes out of your work as well. So, is it? So, the questions are partly about international law itself, but then, is is, is, it, is the crisis that we that there is nothing outside of that, or do we want there to be some international law? I mean, that's the kind of fundamental question about the field, too, isn't it? Well, I want there to be international <laughs> law because I would be out of a job.
0: <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> More seriously. Do we want it more
1: entrenched? I mean, the other argument you have is that it's in a bit like with Chris's position, that it is so invested in... It's not just about everything out there and relationships between states or what goes on in that kind of global context, but it's also about what happens domestically. So it is about... It shapes human rights dis, um, discussions and debates locally, for example. It, it influences all sorts of value debates we have within nations. So there is that investment. It's not completely... Separate. I'm not saying that's what you were arguing, but I'm just trying to position it. I mean, is there how fundamental is it to the crisis, to to the idea of the crisis that is going on at the moment, both that it's problematic or that its absence or or people undermining its value, um, as part of that. So I would have two
0: ways of coming at that, I think. So one would be in conversation already with Chris, which would be to say that one of the problems is to think of international law as unitary. So there is, international law has a thing to say, has an answer, and it's this. And so for a lawyer, it would never be like that. If a lawyer tells you like that, they're not really telling you the truth because lawyers are trained to argue. So we would always be able to give you, well, if that's the rule, then here's the exception. If that's one way to read it, you could read it that way. And a lot of people think that's a a terrible thing about lawyers. It makes us very cynical. But what it also means is that international law and any law is one place where social conflict is articulated and made visible. And it's also a place, therefore, where pluralism is articulated and made visible. I think there have been points in recent history where it's been easier to forget that because there's really been one interpretation of what the law says at any given moment that's been very dominant there have been other points in history, there have been other points in the, in the 20th century where that was far less clear, where there were competing uh, power centres and it was much more obvious to everyone that you could um, interpret the meaning of even core concepts in different ways. Uh, I've just been um, in Moscow a month or so ago uh, and they're trying to understand what, for instance, um, the president means to, when he says that... Um, the uh, Russian action in Crimea is in accordance with international law. So you could treat that cynically and say, well, that's just clearly not the case. Or you could say, what conception of international law would make that a meaningful statement, would make that statement intelligible. Mm -hmm. And that second posture is one that we really haven't seen for a very long time. It doesn't mean you would then agree that that's the right answer, but I think to come into the question that way is really important and something that we haven't seen for some time. And so, in some ways, I see this opening up of some of those much more frozen positions as quite positive. Okay,
1: thank you. All right, so, uh, James, there's a lot there that I think connects with the work you do, um, particularly when we're thinking about the cultural diversity problem. And I know I'm not going to steal your c- concept or let you talk about it. But um, <laughs> and, I, and uh, I'm going to start with, um, with that idea that you have been working on lately, and that is the idea of heteropolarity. Oh. I presume, in your view, it means um, It it addresses some of the issues that uh, Chris has been uh, discussing in terms of, you know, a a much more complex, uh, both and, a a much more complex understanding of what it is that we're looking at when we look at the international order at the moment. So would you like to speak to some of that? And then later I will also ask you to talk talk about diplomacy a little bit, but Mm -hmm. let's start with heteropolarity.
3: That'd be great. Um Lendon knows I'm desperate to get this word into the Oxford English (laughs) Dictionary, so I owe you for uh, the name-dropping, the concept-dropping. But I think, like all the other panelists here, um, part of the reason why we coin these new terms is, first, because we believe we are facing something new and we need new concepts for new phenomenon, Um, but also because we take this seriously. We don't treat this just as an academic exercise. We're struggling to understand these changes, and I think the reason we have this turnout is because there's some general anxiety that our previous concepts um, have proven inadequate. Um, so that's why I con- I'll say a word or two about heteropolarity. But I think before I can get to the where we are now or where we are heading, it's important to see how we got there. And, and here it's my um, pandering to Glenda because she's an historian. Mm-hmm. and I think that history is very important, but... I really learned this lesson just recently. I was flying from the United States to here. And the great thing about these long trans-specific flights is you get to watch a lot of bad films. And so I got to watch Transformer 5 or (laughs) 6, which I think I lost count. But there's an Oxford University history professor in this. And the fact that it's played by Laura Haddock made me pay attention. And uh, in this, um, she has this great line. She says, the key to saving the future lies buried in the secrets of the past. And I think we need to be detectives in somewhat similar manner that historians are. And, of course, Laura Haddock, who's this Oxford University professor, um, she goes back to Merlin to find the secrets of the past. And it turns out Merlin, of course, had access to Transformers, which made it possible for... <laughs> <laughs> we, would call
4: that,
3: we would call that today alternative facts. But, um, but I think it's important to... I would go back a little further than Chris, because a lot of people think that, you know, this modern international order sort of just emerged full-grown out of the peace of Westphalia and the works of Hugo Grotius, the great international legal scholar, and... Um, and I think it's important to understand that yes, there was this attempt to find some kind of new solidarity with this diversity. Um, obviously, coming out of Western Christendom, there was this—you know—call um, it what you will—tradition uh, uh, or a compulsion, but also a fear and anxiety: of what comes next? We don't want to have the anarchy uh, of the past. Um, we want to, in some ways, restore the Holy Roman Empire without a universal monarchy, um, and we want to recognize the world no longer really quite corresponds to that hierarchical, you know, pax, or not pax, but really Christian, Christendom. So how do you do that? And I think here what's missing somewhat so far is that it happens because there's external pressure to do this. All orders have been created because there's something outside that order. It's a mistake to think the international order is a global planetary order. It's always gone back and forth, depending on who is the other, who is the outsider. And certainly at this point, it was the Antichrist, the Turk. I mean, Grotius' most popular work in this time, you know, obviously literacy was pretty limited, but um, his bestseller of the day was about the, the Antichrist, the Turk, um, not about the rights of law or rights and law of war and peace. So there's at every stage we see who's the outsider. I would go further back than Grotius to say what was very important was first of all the Treaty of Augsburg to say you know, it was very important to say that okay Protestant states could also Protestant principalities because states are a little bit of anachronism have um, you know, membership a right to membership in this system, um, not yet a society of states and Also, I think what was going on in the new world. We had a new other. We had the Native American. And the fact that Victoria, a great legal scholar at the time, a scholasticist, wrote about whether or not the Native American could be uh, a legitimate member, if not a full-fledged actor, in this system. And that gradual expansion, I think, is what really made possible a modern international order. And culture played a very important part. And here I totally agree with Chris that you know, going from the cultural homogeneity of Christendom to something that includes the Turk and the Native American, but also allow you to cross these borders. And here's the work of international legal scholars like you know, Gentili and others you know, how to make sure that you could have communication. Without communication, there's no international order. Without diplomatic immunity, there's no international order. Without the institutions, and this is another Oxford professor who taught me this, Hedley Bull, without those set of rules embedded in institutions where no one power could be preponderant over all other powers, bounds of power, um, where war was fought by certain rules, that diplomacy included immunities that would allow foreigners to cross your lands, that you would have something like, you know, great powers with great responsibilities. All of these institutions and rules made it possible to create a society of states that made an international order possible. Now, we see this, to get to your question directly, we see this constantly oscillate between something resembling more tyranny and something resembling more anarchy. And I think we're moving, as this pendulum way, something towards anarchy. And not necessarily a bad thing, because, you know, if the order and this is a question that Hedley Bull would always pose on his final, you know, examinations for us and when we were going into the schools, you know, can there be justice without order? Can there be order without justice? For those who feel that the current order is in some ways another um, an economic injustice, a cultural uh, infringement, or in one way or another causing um, great asymmetries of power, then yeah, that order deserves to end. Um, certainly in parts of the global South, but increasingly, you know, in the North, where you know Trump won partially because of the view that there was a big chunk of um, a population that feels that they were no longer benefiting from this order, particularly the liberal order that Anna spoke of of, of you know IMF, World Bank, and other you know trade agreements that that felt was taking away their dignity and their livelihoods. So they all tie together, the inside, the outside. And just to just briefly get to where I think we are now, a heteropolar condition, I think we've moved from that multipolar world of Westphalia. Um, We've gone through various stages of bipolarity, meaning two poles, be it around wars usually, First World War, Second World War, but then, of course, the Cold War. Then what followed, you know, Um, in 1989 was an attempt to bring about, again, the liberal order that was more, I think, resembling what came out of Westphalia, multipolar states. That didn't work. I think the attempt then of the United States to assert a unipolar moment um, under Bush after 9-11 fell apart, I think, in the streets of Fallujah, where it demonstrated that just having military preponderance or even economic preponderance wasn't sufficient to maintain the liberal order. Um, And I think um, some people then start talking about, like Charles Krauthammer, about uh, an apolarity, no, no one power that can bring order. And that's why I coined this term heteropolarity, because I think we're entering a period, and I want to put a positive value to this, where you have a lot of different actors of different levels of power that can rapidly phase shift there used to be, in, in my field, levels of analysis. You know, you had the individual, usually the man, you had the state, and then you had the system as actors or levels to understand those systems. Now I think we're at a stage where you could have someone in a cave, as Donald Rumsfeld described, bin Laden, have an inward amount of power because of access to things like the Internet, access to civilian airliners, but also the simulators that allowed them to learn how to fly those airliners. So The fact that you had a technologically media-assisted power that was able to play at the same level and, in fact, inflict incredible damage. Billions of dollars, if you just do the immediate aftermath of 9-11, but trillions, if you include the knock-on consequences of the wars (coughs) in Iraq and Afghanistan and then the rise of ISIS in that, you know, vacuum, then you would say that there's a lot of different new players that could be what's called super-empowered individuals that get their power from being networked through different forms of authority, power, and cultures. And again, I don't want to put this all on terrorism, it also includes very positive forms of power, global social movements that can access social media, as we saw, you know, uh, that battle in Seattle which use social media so effectively, or what happened in Greece and and, and elsewhere. So we're entering this heteropolarity, and the reason I say hetero as opposed to multi, multi suggests homogeneity state actors. Heteropolarity says you could be that guy in the cave, but you could also be that guy who has access to an app on your cell phone, who's organizing a demonstration, or you could be, um, you know, the pope, who has, you know, the sort of, Cultural, but also charismatic and other power that is force amplified. And I would use, uh, as well, this idea of a, red, a resonance machine, your ability to access multimedia now, is, which allows you to jump those phases. So heteropolarity, I think, is the way we're going. Um, I don't want to put a trademark on that. I think it it's, um, could be another term. But I think it's the most apt term for describing where we are currently and where I think Laura Haddock would see the past adding up to the uh, future. So, thank you. Okay,
1: thanks. I mean, I'm getting a sense from um, the three of you that, in a way, I I don't need to be too anxious, that things are changing, uh, but they were never that great anyway. Um, They're not going to be much better, but but there is... If we understand what's happening, there's, there's a possibility for shifting some of those gears that were stuck in places that weren't fantastic, whether we think in terms of um, the economic effects of globalization or the kinds of asymmetry of power that were uh, in place uh, during most of the 20th century, culturally or otherwise.
3: I I think the greatest test is whether the change is going to happen through violence or nonviolence. I mean, that's going to be the test. and. You know, right now, because of the nature of the arms trade, because that, um, you know, people still feel that the military does better quick fixes of intractable political problems than diplomacy does, um, because um, I think there's something inherently aggressive in human, I won't say nature, because that's too fixed, I would agree, but I think there's rewards to violence, more rewards to violence. And I think what, one of the projects we have going on is how do you create an art of peace equal or better than the art of war how do you make peace seductive and sexy Um, and that's very important
1: so what about the idea of sustainable diplomacy that you use how does that
3: work well I didn't coin that term and uh, it was a a group of individuals that got together of all places Cyprus that we under Costas Costantinou remarkable diplomatic theorist and um, some people who actually connected to religious movements how do you get a sustainable diplomacy that's not dependent upon state power? Because so many actors now, from you know Angelina Jolie, you know working through the LSE, to um, um, again, I would refer to religious movements um, that have been very effective. We always tend to see only the fundamentalist side of, and the negative side of religions, but they've been doing some really incredible work where states feel to go. And how do you in um, Nonviolent means, and again, the, the Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and others who set the example. I would include Jesus Christ, Buddha. Choose your your figure, your spiritual leader. They don't figure large in our work. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that so blanketly, but in the disciplines in a university, um, they're always marginalized. And so, I think part of our sustainable diplomacy's movement was to bring back that positive element and also to offset the fundamentalist aspects of religion.
1: Mm. Okay, so things aren't going to get better by themselves. We have to keep talking and thinking about these problems. Um, I'm going to open to the floor in a few minutes. But before then, it, do any of you have any follow-up points you'd like to make or ask any questions you want to ask of each other? I keep thinking that the only time that um, the world has got together to try and actually do something uh, uh, sort of proactive about disorder has been at the end of you know, major wars. So, yeah. one hopes that's not what we have to wait for this time. But Chris, yeah. So,
2: so I, I normally I'm considered a bit of a Pollyanna. So I like to look at the nice side of things. But I, I actually, I want to. I actually do think there's a crisis in the international order at the moment, and I'd characterise that crisis in the following way: international orders are like ecosystems. They're the context in they're the kind of political institutional context in which states and peoples make good their lives. It's the way they in which they, they create well-being, and they're the context in which hierarchies are created and maldistributions distributions of power. All orders have those features. But what it seems to me is the international order that's evolved doesn't matter when we date it from before Westphalia, Westphalia 2 centuries, it doesn't matter. But what it seems to me is that the order that we've become accustomed to, certainly over the last 50 years to a century, is an order that's now being pressed in two ways. It's a way of organising political life that is facing challenges that are challenges on the security front. There's old-fashioned security issues to do with shifts in the global distribution of power, but there's also a whole host of new security challenges that James has done terrific work on. The environmental crisis, managing a world economy so that the world economy actually succeeds, not only in maintaining capitalist economies, but in fact in producing good distributions for most of the world's population. Managing people movements, which is a huge crisis in the world at the moment. So there are a whole series of areas where the international order needs to be renovated to deal with these really profound issues. But at a very time when the things that we know have been foundations of international orders are starting to erode or shift in very significant ways. A traditional realist will tell you that There's a fundamental shift going on in the distribution of geopolitical power. But there's also shifts going in the diffusion of power. This is James's heteropolarity. There's a diffusion of power that's going on from states to other actors, creating much more complex power terrain in the international system. We've also got a situation where we're dealing with new articulations of cultural claims that I'm talking about now. We've got a decline in leadership in the international order? What agents are providing leadership in this order now? What happens when a state that we've described as the hegemon starts throwing hand grenades at the order? So we have this, and what happens when you start getting a disjuncture between the nature of the internal makeup of the leading states and the principles that have been embedded in the international order? For a while there, the dominant states in the system were liberal states. There was a sort of synergy between, or at least a claimed synergy, between their domestic institutions and the institutions they sought to construct at the international level. It would be hard to describe that synergy as being all that tight at the moment. So what happens when, and let's call it a liberal international order, I prefer the term modern international order, what happens when the kind of, the elements that hold it together within states start to corrode? So I actually do think there are really profound challenges. Challenges in an order that needs to be renovated, but in order that the things that have kept it going so far are in fact coming unstuck.
0: So um, as you were speaking, this often happens to me, I was thinking I want to believe <laughs> um and that's <laughs> the X-Files post Yeah, I, I love right. that one. Yeah. <laughs> and I also was thinking um oh, international lawyers we always just see states and that's our problem. And I do think that's the case. But um I th- I think because I'm working so much on collective security at the moment, this question of violence seems to me a real problem for the kind of possibilities you're talking about. Mm. And in particular that you know, we're used to a story about the emergence of the state as a moment where there's a, um, you know, the monopoly on the legitimate use of force. And then we st- if we think about the um, current Security Council but older Congress systems, we then see that those who hold that force form a kind of solidarity with each other where they agree that they'll only use that force in particular ways. So if the ways in which those groups agree to use force... Um, this capacity for pacification or stabilisation, if that you know, is positively inclined towards those who are, who are pushing against it, then things might go well. But I think often we see that moments where these kind of crises erupt are where there's social forces like socialist revolutionaries or national liberation movements or now you know, terrorists who are challenging that distribution of violence. So um, then all we have is a, is a collective security system. I mean, the only good thing about the system is that, these, that those who are in charge of those units that we call states at least have to articulate or justify why they're using that force. And the capacity of the system, in a sense, to be... Convincing is depends upon those explanations being so pl- and s- plausible enough that the rest of us buy it. Yeah, and that's made even more challenging. So I've been reading a book by Elaine Scarry called *Thermonuclear Monarchy*. Yeah. Uh, and again, it does have the Prozac issue. Um, it's incredibly <laughs> disturbing to be reminded of the, you know, capacity of the President of the United States, perhaps particularly at the moment to um, really destroy much of the planet. And I know people are worrying a lot about North Korea, but I'm more worried about the other side of that particular war, potential war. So there is a just enormous um, creation of this executive control over, over force that is a very good mechanism for stopping more progressive forms of social organisation. So something in the, the way in which states still hold that seems to me to be important.
5: James?
3: Uh, Yeah, I would just um, quote the other great line from X-Files, which is that the truth is out there. (laughs) And and I don't think it is. Um, None of us have the answer to this particular question It's going to come somewhere in a dialogue conversation. But I think what we should recognize when we say that maybe the truth isn't out there, that there could be multiple truths, and that's not necessarily a threat to our 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 whatever, our being, our existence, our ability to act. Um, You know, people keep talking about post-truth, and and I want to get (laughs) post-post-truth. I want to get back to the idea that we can live with different truths and not feel threatened by that. Um, And I also feel that we can live with collective security, but also a classical model of balance of power. I'm all for the European Union right now, seeing this not as a crisis or European community, seeing this as an opportunity to, to form a, a tighter link and also a military um, uh, counterbalance, not just to what's happening on their eastern borders, but also on their western borders. Um, this was Hedley Bull's line. He was all for a, you know, an independent European military force. Um, Hedley Bull, who is kind of in some ways a great influence on us and on this debate, Sidney Sider, even though people mistakenly put him into the English School of International Relations, um, he was an advocate of actually, believe it or not, saying, you know, India maybe should have nuclear weapons. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I feel this tension between the classical and whatever you want to call it, constructivist post-classical. And I think they can coexist, but it does take some kind of global, not global, but social movement behind it to put pressure for it to happen. Um, it's not going to happen from the top down, and maybe this is where I'm more of the Pollyanna in that You know, I don't subscribe to the great man theories of history. Um, I'm worried about Trump, but not. I don't think. I think it's wrong to obsess about Trump. I think we should be worried about Trumpism. Why? What does he represent? How did he get into power? What are those forces that are going to still be there after he leaves, and he's going to be gone? I'm going to put out a prediction before the midterm elections in the United States. Um, No, seriously.
1: That's going to be in the podcast.
3: Um, that's, I'm willing to go out there and, and be wrong about it, but um, I, I think that the um, you're still going to have the populist, authoritative, and also dispossessed minorities who have resentments to deal with. But, anyways, it's long-winded answer saying I think that maybe um, you know Fox Mulder would be able to you know believe that.
1: That doesn't make me feel any better. Uh, Yeah, we should be be talking about the extra planetary threats right now. All right, so we're going to take questions from uh, all of you. All right, uh, the mic's going to go around. We'll take a couple of questions at a time. Thank you.
6: I've got two questions in particular. So I'm not a student of international law. I don't know many terms. I'm a student of architecture. Mm -hmm. So you're going to bear with my plain English for a while. Two questions. First of all, I'm wondering to which extent is the political power still in play? Because, I mean, effectively, the biggest or one of the biggest, most dominant countries, the States, is now run by businessmen. We don't have much of a political background as much or much of a political power that's sort of determining the market, the economy, the international society from our eyes being outsiders of international law or the whole law discipline. Mm. Um, To which extent is politics able to sort of determine or play or mingle around with the power of the economy or the many economies? And second, could you please expand... um, So that's a question to Professor Christian. Could you please expand on the thing that you were talking about um, the sort of conflict between cultural diversity and globalization because personally, um, I came from China 80 years ago and looking back at it, I feel like it's starting to promote cultural belonging more so than when I left. I feel like people who are currently in the Chinese the Chinese school year um, that I left from, they're getting more education on senses of cultural belonging because the government, I feel, like is sort of in fear of losing that sense of cultural belonging. Similar things goes to Australian schools where they're teaching more and more Aboriginal culture. Similar things goes to the states where they're teaching more and more of the states, independent wars, etc. Like all these countries, and I've recently traveled to Italy and I'm I stayed at the village. Local villages, Italian villages in the Alps, which no longer have Italian restaurants, they have French restaurants. French restaurants, French supermarkets. I was really like, sort of surprised, so I went over to the borders to the French side of the Alps and there were Italian restaurants, Italian cafes, Italian patisseries. So just a question out there, what, what is cultural diversity in a globalised economy or society?
1: else have their hand
4: up? Sorry, there were so many. Uh, we, we can go over there, pass it down, and then slowly go down. Hello, uh, my question is for Anne. Um, something you said about. Uh, international relations in the post-September 11 era becoming more security-focused struck me. Uh, as a, as a second-year international relations student, uh, one of the cases in uh, the International Court of Justice that struck me was uh, the Reagan era, Nicaragua versus United States. And it seems like uh, the U.S., even back then, used... Um, security arguments to basically flawed international law. So how is that uh, time different to the current or, well, not current now, but um, post-September 11 security environment focus? Okay, so uh, perhaps just over there first, because you
1: could
5: have that. Yeah. And then we'll have questions. Um, I am just generally wondering, I know he was obviously far too early, but is there perhaps just a sense of inevit- inevitability about the liberal world order, a la Fukuyama? Is it the end of history, eventually? Mm. Does it matter what happens to us today, tomorrow, next year? What's going to happen 50 years or 100 years? Won't all these people demand a certain standard of living, a certain way of being? The mm. more that they become prosperous, their uh, hierarchy of needs increases? Mm. Okay,
1: maybe one just one more,
4: Um, This question is to uh, James and Christian. Um, I'm wondering whether you could uh, look at the problem from the uh, frame of armed nationalism, which is emerging at a trajectory that we've never seen before. That's one question. The other question is to Anne. Um, Balthazar Garçon made a move which was rather extraordinary and seemed to leap out of the morass that you were talking about, that the international... Legal thinkers are stuck in; seem to be stuck in. Um, what do you see coming out of uh, Baltasar Garzón's initiatives when the world lords him and his home country? Um, I think condemns him.
1: Okay, so can we have some uh, goes at those in general, in a general sense? You can tackle them or start with you, Chris. Okay, so close.
2: what? A, so the question of cultural diversity and. And globalization, what what does cultural diversity mean in that context? You know, we, we tend to approach these questions by beginning with the idea that there are these things called cultures that then shape political environments. So I actually increasingly think that the better starting point is to start by assuming existential cultural diversity. And that diversity has many different dimensions. It has the diversity of the different identities that individuals carry with them. It has, the, it has the dimension of the different meanings that comprise any kind of cultural context, often meanings that are highly contradictory. It comprises the different interpretations that actors can bring to the very same set of meanings. So we live in, and I think this is just a characteristic of the human condition is cultural diversity. And a more interesting question to me is how forms of cultural unity are constructed in any situation. There are patterns of cultural commonality, but those are the product of human practice. And what interests me is those practices. So when I hear stories about kids learning about the sense of belonging in Chinese schools, That says to me that there is a project that's being driven perhaps by a number of different imperatives that's about constructing national identity and a sense of of common history. and and, And this is in a context of a state that is very culturally heterogeneous and throughout its history has been very culturally heterogeneous. And that, 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 that the, very, the very thing that we call China has shifted and grown and, and shrunk and transformed. And its cultural complexion has transformed across that period. So the question for me under conditions, when you ask what does cultural diversity mean under conditions of globalisation, globalisation may change the, the ways in which diversity is constructed but i don't think it changes the underlying reality of begin with by assuming cultural heterogeneity and then ask how are patterns of cultural commonality and unity constructed in those contexts mm. and i think that's actually a better place to start than by but from the place we normally start mm. which is by assuming that there are these things called cultures that then have effects mm. i think that's the best way i can answer that on the end of history question i you know i I never bought Fukuyama's argument in the first place. Uh, but one of the, it does give me a chance to say something about the modern international order. And this relates to the stuff that I've done on struggles for individual rights. Is that the modern international order is a product of struggle and it's a product of struggle often by people that were considered marginal and weak. You know, we would not have you know, if you th- just think about the very fact of decolonisation which produced a global international system, you can't tell that story without focusing on struggles against the will of the dominant powers of the time. So the fact that there are people struggling away and seeking seeking to transform this below the level of the state and across the boundaries of the states is in fact normal business for the history. Of the modern international system.
6: Do you want to have a go in?
0: Yeah, so very quickly, just in response to the question on what do we make of the US being run by a businessman, um, it, often when I'm hear him talking at the moment, it seems to me that he's been called into being by rational choice theory and game <laughs> theory. So <laughs> so he has no loyalty, he'll buy, he'll pay for anything, you know. I mean, maybe that's um, maybe I'm not being fair. Maybe there's <laughs> things he wouldn't pay for. But it's, so it seems to me that he just seems that this is what's been coming. This is what they've been telling us. Politics is in a certain kind of capitalist democracy, and so in some ways, he, he seems to be well predicted and theorized. And he doesn't seem to disrupt some um, thinking about international law and international politics. He seems to realize it. Unfortunately. Um, thank you for the question about Nicaragua. I didn't plant you in the audience, but I almost could have. It's because it's um, one of the uh, cases that really opened up the question that we're exploring in the laureate program, because we treat it as an iconic case in international law—a moment where, um, after a lot of you know, um, developments by post-colonial states pushing for an articulation of what non-intervention might mean if states were properly to be able to realise self-determination, and pushing back against a certain kind of um, theory of proxy wars that had been developed in Vietnam, carried through to Latin America, and then many of the same players uh, were advising in different ways the administration in relation to the Middle East. So we saw in Nicaragua um, the international legal articulation of what non-intervention might mean if it was to take issue with that. So, so And there the finding of the International Court of Justice was you can't arm, train, harbour, fund, um, advise rebel groups even if you think you have really good humanitarian reasons for doing so. And that seems like another planet. So that doesn't seem like it has anything to do with international law today. So the question isn't whether US security policies shifted, I think. In fact, there's a continuum across those three different areas, Vietnam... South America, Latin America and the Middle East leading to a similar kind of disruption of a region and producing of massive amounts of displacement as we saw in Latin America and now in the Middle East. The difference is in international law's accommodation of that and in the liberal establishment's accommodation of that. So that was just... The arguments that were made then were just not plausible by the US and now it's hard to remember a, a moment where it seemed arguable, so there's the difference Um, the end of history Um, I'm less sanguine about that, Uh, I think that communication and the knowledge that you could have a certain standard of living and demands for a certain way of life could lead in all sorts of directions Um, and I don't know if you've watched The Handmaid's Tale but what I found quite troubling about it was that it seemed to be on the brink of something that you could bring into being if um, through social movements you know so you could have social movements that are extremely <laughs> religious extremely conservative yeah. uh, and that and that are equally an end of history so I hope not but it's I don't think there is any determinacy about where history is taking us I think there is a struggle that everyone is in, in, involved in um, I think the question about Gasson is directing me to Pinochet is that right and Okay, Uh, I guess the the easiest one for me to to speak to would be um, his uh, involvement in the Pinochet um, uh, prosecution, and I think that was a really that was a turning point in some ways um, for many government lawyers and diplomats who suddenly realised that they would no longer be in control of international law, Mm -hmm. that international law had moved out of the State Departments and the Foreign Offices, that's not fully controlled there any longer. So that the UK or Spain or, you know, other, other governments were no longer fully in control of their relations with other states and their former leaders. And I think that has fairly radically shifted hmm. the system.
3: Oh, OK. A um, lot has been covered, so I'll just go through it sort of shotgun very quick. Um, I think that the uh, end of th- history thesis, uh, where its chief flaw um, in the interpretation of because to be fair to Fukuyama, he also called it the last man, the end of history and the last man. It was kind of this weird mashup of Hegel and Nietzsche, uh, which doesn't really work if you're a philosopher, but nonetheless, um, he was trying to make the point that um, we're reaching the end of a telos, mm-hmm. And I don't think history follows, if it ever did, this neat, linear, teleological path. It's something that people like Fukuyama and some historians, I think, create. Um, A lot of the great debates in my own field have been sort of post-hoc attempts to put some sort of reason, some some sort of rationality, onto a process that's often driven by a lot of, you know, call it what it is, you know, accidents. The only real empire out there is, I think, the force of circumstance, and I think in it's increasingly so because every accident now gets goes from the incident to the crisis level very quickly because it's got so much media attention, so much um, um, you know potential to um, inflect outside a region, and that's part of the that's the downside of interconnectivity. Okay. Um, So that's one response to that. Um, Cultural diversity, I think um, I would echo a lot of what Chris says, and I I would also argue something we haven't talked about much is the greatest threat to cultural diversity is not from states, but from uh, enormously um, globalized Mm. technology companies. I mean, right now, if you want to know what you desire, look at Amazon. If you want to know what to think, Google. Google. If you know, you know who we are, Facebook, you know, not nation states, I'm sorry, that's, to me, you know, going to be more of a threat to identity and to real politics, meaning politics in the sense that we have some say over our lives. Um, and I would also probably put Tesla there and what we're going to drive, you know, <laughs> or how we're going to... How, how we're going to drive it. Today. How we're going to drive it. Where to, you know. Uh, you know... We don't have to worry about the environment. Uh, we can just go out to Mars if you have a couple million dollars. Anyways, that's another issue. Um, Post-9-11, yes. I think a lot of this, and this is why I think that history is being driven less so by state behavior, state actions, more by these super-empowered individuals, but also global events in general. Um, states, you know, I think, are increasingly reacting to and often exacerbating incidents, these global events, by what's almost like an autoimmune response. And the response to 9-11 triggered so many second, third order consequences. You know, At the time, we actually, 9-11 plus one, we staged this major event. We brought in all these thinkers and military people and how we could have done it better. And it was amazing how many people knew what was going to happen next in Iraq and everything else. But they never, they couldn't get the message out. So again, I think it's why we started a lot of our multimedia projects, independent ones, because I think the university has a responsibility because there was a lot of people, you know, everybody loves this line, you know, I'm sorry that Hillary Clinton used it quite a bit to justify her vote for the Iraq invasion. She said, well, if I only knew now what I didn't know then. Well, a lot of people did know, but they couldn't get it out. Including inspection teams, and so I think the university has a special burden um, to support um, these type of um, call it what you will um, independent investigations, and to have the means you got to have access to these these nodes to the interconnectivity to counter call it what you want alt facts, post truth, and um, and that's why I respect Garzón because you know this is a you know someone who used these notes, um, judicial authorities, judicial networks, and he's taking a lot of flack. I think he's, he's Assange's lawyer, isn't he? Julian Assange's lawyer. And he's taking a lot of flack for this because you might not like Julian Assange as a person, but for what he's done, for like, you know, bringing some transparency to the darker side of the national security state, you need you know, people of that caliber and, and that sort of ability to get the message out. Um, so I respect what he's doing, and I think... Um, it's why I think we still have to recognize, even as you've said, even as international law loses its state authority, state basis, um, it still has incredible ability to um, do good.
1: So we'll take a couple more questions before we end. Down here, we didn't, because uh, you actually um, you had your hand up for ages. Are you sure you don't want to ask the question? All right, there and there, and that's it. Then. Awesome. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, okay. Sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Okay, we'll do, we'll do you first. Natasha and then you. Okay. Two
0: questions. Okay. Thank you. That was
5: all very interesting. I was struck by something that Professor um, Orford said regarding when members of a collective security system have to at least try and explain the, their uses of violence. Um, and, of course, the next question is who is the audience of that speech. And, of course, it's each other to some extent. It's an implied community invested, you know, embedded in that very idea of a collective security system. Um, and, you know, of course, there's a lot of de- debate about what this talk value of international law is in general, but I wondered if what we're talking about here is a particular, that particular equation between speech and violence shifting. Um, because what happens if you don't have that community or that common uh, framework or field for implied speech in under conditions of heteropolarity or however else we want to talk about it? Um Uh, And so does the nature of the violence change if it is differently attached to discourse? Interesting.
1: And one more. Do you have your hand up for ages?
6: Um, I was just wondering, and maybe this will be a brighter note or not, depending on how you answer. Given the history of the liberal economic order has been mostly to narrow the development space of poorer nations, do you think this swing back towards anarchy and heteropolarity um, might offer some viable development opportunities for the global south?
3: Hmm.
1: who'd like to t- oh yeah
4: okay one more right. you're the time boss howdy uh, I'll keep it short then um, just wanted to ask in relation to sovereignty and sovereignty being connected to geography and the callback to Brexit and Trump being votes that were kind of aligned between city versus rural and the way that there was a collection of global mayors that came together to unite on policies and and kind of come together for legislation and everything else there seems to be Uh, a sense of political collection that isn't uh, predicated on geography, which kind of questions sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And just wanted to get your comment on that.
1: Okay, great question. Okay, who'd like to take any
3: of those? I'll I'll just very quickly, I think those are all great, and it's hard to do them justice, but I think that in terms of one of the new actors, players, nodes of heteropolarity, you'd have to include global cities. You'd have to include these mayors who have their separate organizations. People are talking about California as having perhaps, you know, more of an international presence than Washington DC does now in the United States um, because of its policies, um, global policies. So um, I think that that's um, certainly going to be a trend. Um, Anarchy is potential or an opportunity for the, call it what you will, global south or dispossessed, those who haven't benefited from the liberal order. I think it's already happening. Um, It's happening in kind of um, collective, communal, regional ways as opposed to global ways. Um, And that's one of the reasons I'm really glad I was able to come to Australia, to see that happening in various parts of South Asia and um, um, to see the cultural diversity and economic, call it what you will, diversity. going hand-in-hand, hand. and uh, it's amazing how the trans-border flows now. Um, you know, we were talking about the immigrant issue, but it seems like this is a brighter picture, is how it corresponds to the economic flows, and also, uh, call it what you will, the knowledge flows. I'm finding it's many might be a way that Australia could lead in that type of heterogeneity if possible. Um, finally, uh, I, I'm, I, I also just wanted to make one final note that I, I might have been a little too, you um, used the word Pollyannish, was it, mm. or sort of optimistic. But I, I think that we, as academics and intellectuals, we'll call us what you will, you know, we have a task, we're supposed to be pessimistic, we're supposed to um, question. But I think as call it what you will, you know, citizens, and I see this group more as a non-academic crowd it brings out the optimist in me. I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really, um, to have that optimism of the will, the pessimism of the intellect that, you know, Gramsci talked about is so important. Um, if you're gonna, you know, nudge, I mean, we're all sort of, I think we're constructivists, would you say? We, we take responsibility for our ideas and we wanna nudge this transformation in a certain direction. So I, I, I'm, you know, I, I think that getting that balance right is um, going to be the toughest thing in the university right now.
0: OK. Thank you for the questions. Natasha, I think that that's a very interesting way to think about it. Um, and uh, I think the audience for you know legal speech is broader than just other members of, say, the collective security, sort of the C- Security Council. I think it's interesting... Um, and my colleague Dino Kritziosos has has written an interesting piece about that in the Oxford Handbook, that states feel compelled to give legal justifications for their use of force even outside a courtroom or outside the Security Council. And I think that's because law is such an important marker of the difference between genocidal violence or Mm. um, torture or mass atrocity and the things we treat as legitimate uses of force. Um, I also was struck by the fact that the Trump administration didn't make any legal justification for the action, the bombing of Syria recently, and that nonetheless liberal establishment figures were very enthusiastic about that bombing. And it, I then wonder from, I mean, your question makes me think, I wonder if they felt they were, their legal justification emerged out of just an appeal to the images of the children of God or. Well, however Trump put that. Mm. So um, I, I do think that that's a, a worrying move away from an articulation uh, through rationalisation to um, the appeal on the sentimentality of those kinds of images, but that's an extremely modernist position that I maybe don't want to take too much further. Um, I think the, city, the question about the, this kind of urban politics is very interesting, and also the, the kind of urban or the, the city and country or the, um, the idea of a kind of urban theorists of urbanisation that, that the urban is a form of economic organisation. So one thing that would be worrying is if there's more attention paid to these cities in privileging them over kind of the, the, the country that um, will kind of become more and more disenfranchised. And, um, you know, my sense from European history would be, I say very blithely that, um, that the gap between urban and rural was one of the causes I guess of fascist mobilization the the kind of extreme the uh, extremes of of, um, of rural dispossession and, and, and impoverishment and 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 that's interesting food for thought i suppose mm-hmm. um Optimism, yes. So I have an optimistic response. Um, I don't think the challenges we're facing are necessarily bad news. I suppose for the reasons that I've been suggesting. So I think that this current critical attention to these, the foundations, the direction, the nature of economic globalization, of the of the international order more broadly, um, offers some possibilities, and particularly around these issues of economic. Um, inequality and um, uneven development. Um, And I I think particularly that's the case in relation to economics because so much decision-making around private property is handed over to these arbitrators or to decision-makers who are necessarily um, not able to properly evaluate normative preferences. And so property (coughs) questions are treated as if they're technical. So I think you know this. This being reopened as a political question is is good, and um, hmm. I think it's timely to kind of revisit the foundations
2: of this order.
1: Okay, Chris, you've got the closing words. Are they going to be Pollyanish sure. <laughs> or dark?
2: No, I've got to push against my Pollyanna self. So okay. So let me just on the question of this. This question of. You know, will the breakup of the existing order or the the, the fragmenting of the existing order create positive opportunities, new developmental opportunities? I think maybe, right? But I think one thing that's important to me to remember is that the modern liberal international order with its powerful financial institutions and organisations of economic power is a regulatory institution. And markets need regulatory institutions of some kind because markets aren't just distributors. And so the question we need to ask is we shouldn't go from thinking there's this really dysfunctional global regulatory environment that is structuring economic life in this inequitable way. We shouldn't go from that, which is a correct assumption and view, to thinking in the collapse of that we might get some, some more just economic distribution because the market, simple anarchy and the freedom and free flow of economic exchange is not going to produce that. So some other kind of regulatory environment is going to have to emerge. And that's not going to be just unless concrete efforts are made to construct one that's just. It won't just happen. And I think that's why, in a sense, thinking about what is needed to create a new international order out of whatever we want to keep or whatever is left of the existing order is really important because the, just the simple absence of the, what we've got isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, sovereignty in, the question about sovereignty in cities, I, I would agree with what my colleague said. The point I'd make is that sovereignty has had a long history and it's a claim about the organisation of political authority, but it's been incredibly flexible in what it's actually meant in practice. It's been, it's been mobilised as a claim... To justify everything from populism or the popular sovereignty through to the rule of Louis XIV and everything in between. So, the very very institution of sovereignty has an extraordinary flexibility to it. And so, the very fact that you've got cities that are gaining greater importance in this heteropolar world doesn't mean to me necessarily. The demise of sovereignty might mean the transformation of sovereignty
1: well I think you know the lesson I've taken from all this careful passing and I've enjoyed every minute of it I have to say is that I'm glad I call this the thinker's guide to the 21st century because the lesson is we need to think And that's what I'm taking away from this. And many of you are students, and I wish... I love history, and they've all said how important it is, and I think it is too, but I want to be in those classrooms studying IR and international law now. So let's all go home and think, but come back and think some more on August the 23rd when we're covering feminism in the age of populism with some more fabulous speakers. We'll be back here. You can register online. And there's... So there's three more panels to go this semester. Looking forward to them. Thank you for your time today. Thanks to the panel. (laughs)